Hey, good morning or good afternoon whenever you're listening. This is Eric, and I'm actually re-recording the sermon from June 20, uh, June 28th, uh, The Theology of Trees, the Burning Bush. Um, when I recorded this sermon at the park, it was quite windy that day, and the microphone that I was using picked up a lot of that wind, and it was a very poor recording. So we're going to give this a second run. Um, in our series that we're doing, The Theology of Trees, the previous week we ended with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And what I'd like to do this morning is just to kind of open it up. I just want to walk through a short progression through the end of Genesis. So we ended with the tree of knowledge of good and evil. I just kind of want to show the trees in Genesis. And then we'll get into Moses. We'll talk about the burning bush and what's happening there. Um, in Hebrew, the word for tree is eight. Uh, you would spell it in English, E-T-S. It sounds like uh, a plural of mount of the number eight, eight. Um, and this word eight, uh, again, the Hebrew word for tree, it means tree, wood, sticks, timber, log, plank, etc. As this word progresses kind of through scripture, um, we end with Genesis 3 after we talked about the tree of knowledge of good and evil in chapter 2 and 3 last week. We end with Genesis 3. Um, Adam and Eve are in exile, and there is an angel guarding the tree of life so that Adam and Eve might not eat of it anymore. Again, we talked about that being a mercy, that God was merciful to Adam and Eve. Um, from there, the next time we encounter this Hebrew word, eights, is Noah, right? In Genesis 6.14, eights uh, there becomes a vehicle of life. God, in his mercy, uses wood to bring life, to bring salvation, to rescue the world. Uh, Genesis 6.14 says that Noah is going to make an ark of gopher or cypress wood. And there's water and there's pitch and there's tar and there's salvation. There's all those things. But the important thing to remember here is that Noah is making this quote, remember this phrase, ark of gopher wood or ark of cypress wood. We're going to pick that up when we get back to Moses in Exodus. Uh, just a few more steps as we kind of just trace this word eight, as we trace the trees in Genesis. In Genesis 18, God appears to Abraham near the great trees of Marm. This is the famous uh, three visitors that visit Abraham and Sarah. Most Christians see the Trinity in this meaning. Um, the most one of those beautiful icons by Andrei Rublev um, is of this meeting of um, the three visitors visiting Abraham. So we have that happening in Genesis 18. And then at the end of Genesis, we have Jacob being described as a tree. Um, Jacob's father, Joseph, begins blessing his 12 sons. And as he blesses his 12 sons, when he comes around to blessing Jacob, he describes Jacob as a tree. Um, Jacob, in many senses, becomes the archetype, becomes the prototype, uh, the model of Psalm 1. Um, this, uh, this is the one who is a tree like planted by streams of water. The righteous man planted by streams of water. Um, they yield fruit in season. Um, their leaf does not wither. So that's kind of just a few steps from the tree of life um, to Noah, to Abraham, to Joseph, of how we see this word being played out in the book of Genesis. 
Now, um, remember Noah, if we remember that phrase that I said I wanted you to remember from Noah, and if you have your Bible and you go to Exodus chapter 3, let me turn there real quickly. I'm sorry, let's go to Exodus chapter 2. And if we're remembering Noah, we're going to come across a very similar phrase in Exodus 2-3. Um, we'll start in verse 1. The man of the house of Levi married a Levite woman, and she became pregnant and gave birth to a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him for three months. But she could uh, hide him no longer. But when she could hide him no longer, she got a papyrus basket for him and coated it with tar and pitch. Then she placed the child in it and put it among the reeds of the bank of the Nile. Um, the, the phrase here, again, if you're going to look at the original language, the phrase here is that she makes an ark of reeds or an ark of papyrus. And again, we have water. We have the pitch and tar that we saw with Noah. We have the salvation. We have, in essence, what we have, again, is this kind of repetition with variants that we have been studying and learning. So what we saw with Noah, the way that Noah is going to bring salvation to the world, we are kind of getting clues and hints that Moses is going to do the same thing. Now, the main man today, this guy Moses, as we kind of get into him, uh, go to Exodus chapter 3. We're going to read these first six verses. Um, Exodus chapter 3, verse 1. Now Moses was tending the flock of Jethro, his father-in-law, the priest of Midian, and he led the flock to the far side of the desert and came to Horeb, the mountain of God. There the angel of the Lord appeared to him in the flames from the flames of fire from within a bush. Moses saw that the bush was on fire. Uh, it did not burn up. So Moses thought, I will go over and see the strange sight, why the bush does not burn up. When the Lord saw that he had gone over to look, God called to him from within the bush, Moses, Moses. And Moses said, here I am. Do not come any closer, God said. Take off your sandals, for the place where you are standing is holy ground. Then he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. At this, Moses hid his face because he was afraid to look at God. Now, this passage is just so loaded and, and commentators have written so much and observed so much and thought about this so much. But I want to talk about, start by talking about this man, Moses, because sometimes we kind of gloss over the, the real Moses is what I would say, or the original Moses, right? Moses, as we encounter him throughout chapter two, is a murderer, right? He kills an Egyptian and hides him in the sand, right? So he kills an Egyptian, and instead of coming clean, the first thing he thinks about doing is hiding him and burying him in the sand. He then becomes a fugitive. Pharaoh wants to kill him in chapter 2, verse 15, and so he runs away from Pharaoh and into this foreign land. He's now an alien in a foreign land. that He's even referred to as this Egyptian or that Egyptian, the women at the well refer to him as this Egyptian. And we could say that he's he's pretty busy with a dead-end job. Remember, he comes from the house of Pharaoh, and now he is a sheep herder in the middle of, of the Sinai Peninsula, in the middle of the desert. You could think of it this way. Maybe a more um, modern interpretation would be that if you committed a murder, right, 
and you tried to go bury the person in the sand or in the mountains or some remote place, right? But somehow it's found out and you flee to Mexico or you flee to South America or you flee to Central America. You're hiding somewhere down there. Uh, you're working as a day laborer in a field somewhere or you're just kind of you're just kind of working um, some dead end job. This is this is our guy that God is going to call. Right. Sometimes we suffer from what's called, I would say, Disney princess theology in which we always and only identify ourselves with the rosy, pretty parts of the Bible. And sometimes you really fail to examine and take inventory of the true nature of our being. So here is Moses in the middle of the desert near Mount Sinai. And he sees this funny sight. He sees this bush that's on fire and it's not being consumed. Let's consider this for a bit. This bush, this shrub, this little fern. And here's the first thing that stands out to me. If I were God and if I wanted to get somebody's attention for perhaps what we could call this in Exodus, the greatest rescue mission, the greatest exodus that will ever be recorded. Me personally, I'm not choosing a bush, right? Personally, I would go sequoia. I'd maybe go kind of giant oak. Uh, there's this giant ficus tree that's in the park near the playground. I mean, if I'm God and I'm going to do this thing and I want to get Moses' attention and I'm going to make this a part of the Bible. Like, let's do it right, right? What's fascinating is that the commentators kind of point out that Yahweh humbles himself in a bush, in a shrub, in a little fern. Sometimes as I've been thinking about this lately, I would um, think of just kind of a, like almost a little Charlie Brown Christmas tree, that God would, would use that as the medium, so to speak, that would catch Moses' attention that he would speak through, right? Maybe to think of it another way, if you were to give your child instructions and you really wanted to tell them what to do, sometimes you stand up really tall and you put your hands on your hip and you roll your shoulders back and you use your loud voice to really get their attention to what you want them to do. But in this picture, it's almost as if God gets on one knee or gets on both knees or gets right down to the very eye level of the child of Moses and gives him these instructions. Do you see the beauty in this humble, modest, unpretentious, Charlie Brown Christmas tree bush? I feel God is taking a knee in front of this murdering, fugitive, sheep herder. And he says, Moses, I have a task for you, right? Now, again, another interesting part about this is that Moses pauses to see one or a bush on fire. Again, not only does God not choose a giant tree, but he's, there's not a giant forest fire as well. It's just one simple little bush that's on fire, yet not consuming. Most commentators point out here that this becomes a strong metaphor for God himself. What does, God, what does fire need to exist? air and fuel, right? If you had a fire and there was no air, the fire would go out. If you had a fire and there was no fuel, the, air, the fire would go out. But this fire does not feed on the bush. It does not feed on the wood. It does not need substance for its existence or perpetuation. The fire simply is. God is. God is a self-sustaining source of energy, a self-sustaining being, a self-sustaining presence. He does not depend on any outside energy or substance for his existence. 
So you have the little bush, you have the fire, and Moses is drawn to God out of this curious sight, much as we are kind of drawn to God out of our own curiosity, right? Is there a purpose in life? You might be asking yourself. Is there any meaning in my suffering? Is there redemption for my mistakes? Will the world ever be made right? Is there ultimate hope? Does love win or will we see hate and anger and bitterness and revenge actually be the dominant forces in the world? Moses is drawn, much like you and I are drawn, out of curiosity. And he encounters God and God says two words. He says, Moses, Moses. Anytime something is repeated in the Bible, we have to tune in, right? And there's two commands. The first command is don't come any closer. Now, this is an interesting command. Why would God give this command, don't come any closer? As you and I read back into the Exodus narrative, I think one of the things that we could see here is that this almost becomes a foreshadowing of Christ, right? We understand that we just can't casually stroll up into the presence of God. Right. You and I can't even stroll up casually to our governor to say a great business leader like Tim Cook or a favorite football player, even the president or a senator. Right. You would need an intermediary, someone in between you and that person who would give you access. Right. As we think about God here saying, don't come any closer. We understand that diff- that um, distance, that in that distance, we will need an intermediary. Someone in between God and I who can be that person. Well, who is that person? Of course, that's Jesus, right? That's Jesus. In 1 Timothy chapter 2, verse 5, let me turn there one second. Let me read you this verse. 1 Timothy 2, 5. The Bible says this. The Bible says, For there is one God and one mediator between God and men the man, Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all men, the testimony given in its proper time. So God tells Moses, don't come any closer. You and I understand that that distance is one day bridged by Jesus himself. The second thing that he says here is take off your sandals for where you are standing is holy ground. This is the origin of what we would say sacred space. In Genesis, we only have sacred time. We have the Sabbath that's given down as a holy day, as a time period that's sacred. But when Moses removes his shoes, the space becomes sacred. Now, the removing of shoes itself is a sign of humility. It's a sign of respect, right? Priests still to this day remove shoes before synagogue benedictions. I've been thinking about this too as uh, one of the internet um, phenomena that's kind of cropped up in the last couple months is something called preachers and sneakers, where these particular preachers fashion themselves with incredibly expensive sneakers, three, four, five, even sometimes thousand dollar sneakers. And I just think that how wonderful it would be if maybe pastors, if maybe preachers, we got on stage barefoot. As a, res- as a sign of humility, as a sign of respect, as a sign of holy ground. The other thing that kind of is interesting about Moses taking off his shoes or his sandals is that one often removes shoes before entering a home, right? 
you don't want to bring the filth of the world into your home. As if Moses and you're walking through dirt and sheep dung and all the sorts of things that would be in, in the desert, you would remove that. And so as you enter your home. And so when God tells Moses to take off his sandals, in some senses, remember, Moses was an Israelite born in foreign Egypt. He grows up in the Pharaoh's palace. He flees his birthplace to Sinai, this alien, this stranger. And here somewhere in the midst of all of his displacement, God says, take off your shoes. Moses, in my presence, you are home. Lastly, and um, the question is often asked, did the ground just become holy or was it holy the whole time and Moses just noticed it? Here's what I want to leave us with. This kind of concept is that is the ground, this ground, earth, life, physicality, only occasionally holy, sacred, divine. Say we think about holy times, sacred times during worship or prayer or when we take the Eucharist or on Sunday morning. Or maybe you're listening to this podcast, right? And, and, and you're thinking, this is kind of my holy scripture time. Or is the ground always holy if we just have eyes to see it? I recently read a book by my friend Jan Johnson. And at the end of Jan's um, book, it's called When the Soul Listens, Finding Rest and Direction in Contemplative Prayer. And Jan is just really describing in this book a life with God. What does a life with God look like? Um, in the end of her book, she tells us remarkable stories, and I want to read it to you um, as we kind of close this time. In one of my first lengthy interactions with Dallas Willard, I was interviewing him for a magazine. That morning, I struggled with an early version of Microsoft Outlook that I could not get to work. Close to tears, I gave up, grabbed my recording equipment, and headed over to Dallas's house. At some point during the interview, Dallas explained a contemplative life with God relationship. Dallas says this, quote, let's say I'm a plumber and I'm going to clean out someone's sewer. How would I do this if Jesus would do it? If you encounter difficulties with the people you're serving or with the pipe or the machinery, you never fight that battle alone. You invoke the presence of God. You expect to see something happen that is not the result of you. If you train yourself to thank God when those coincidences happen, you'll see them as patterns in your life. The crucial thing is to be attentive to God's hand and not to get locked into one-on-one -on -one thinking, it's just me and this pipe. Never do that. It takes training not to do that. A person has to train himself to think, now is the time to praise God for the solution that just came to me. That's called life in God. Training brings you to the point where you don't have to say, I have to pay attention. You routine, routinely think this is an occasion when God is present. It's, it, this is a time to pray, to praise, end quote. Jan finishes by saying this. I stopped taking notes and stared at him. He said slowly, it's never just me and the pipe. I couldn't reply. I was stunned thinking it's never just me and Outlook. I never must think I'm just on my own. The thought that God was present and knew something about software programs seemed radical and wonderful. 
as we learn to recognize God's presence in every activity, our eyes are opened to opportunities we otherwise miss, and we gladly thank God for small bits of assistance. Contemplative living wakes us up, so to speak, because otherwise we become drowsy with the weight of daily duties and cares, looking but not perceiving, observing but not understanding. And I just was thinking about that story with Dallas and just how Jan phrased it. It's never just you and the pipe. It's never just you and your job. It's never just you parenting. It's never just you. God is always present with you. The ground that you are on is holy. If you would have eyes and ears to see it and perceive it and feel it, God's presence is always always with you. The ground you're walking on is holy. There are burning bushes all around you. Today, stop and see. God, show me the burning bushes. God, may I feel the holy ground and experience the goodness and the love of God. I pray that God is with you today. I pray that God strengthens you today. I pray that he would show you Um, new ways to live in this world and give you fresh eyes to see him at work in your life. Blessings to you today. Amen.